So, um, in particular this morning, then, I want to turn your attention to the, uh, the vision of Daniel in chapter 7, and to, 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 in particular, the, the vision of what Daniel calls the Asian of days, and, and what takes place in the throne room, the court of the Asian of days. I said last week when I was opening, at the opening of my, my sermon last week, that the sermon I preached in the first week, first Sunday of the year, was a sermon I had intended to preach on the New Year's Eve service that we had to cancel. And this was a sermon I was meant to preach, I intended to preach on the first Sunday of the year. So I'd hope to preach those two sermons and uh, help you, those of you especially who take the, the, the turn of the year or new year as an opportunity to do some reflection and to, uh, to seek uh, just guidance of, from the Lord for, for the year. So um, I, I thought I'd turn your attention by uh, drawing you, you, yeah, bringing you to this vision, turning your attention to this vision, and uh, uh, hoping that we can gather some of the comfort and the hope and the, the strength that I, I believe Daniel sought to gather and that Daniel found from reading, uh, from this vision he had of the, of the Asian of Days, and, and no doubt a vision that was then, is then been recorded so that we um, as Christians, as believers, may draw similar comfort from, from it. Um, now, now the, the designation, the title uh, that Daniel has is a vision of God, and he, when he, he, this vision he has of God, he, he says, I, see, I saw the Asian of days. And I think it's quite a well-known one in Christian circles to refer to God as the Asian of days. I don't know if that's because we actually know Daniel 7. I don't know if it's because, I don't know how many of us would actually know that Asian of days was in Daniel chapter 7, or if it's because... Um, We've heard it sung a few times. So I, I was, there's a quite a popular song. Um, I'm sure one of the most popular gospel songs is called "The Asian of Days" by um, the American uh, gospel musician Ron Ron Canoli. And I don't know if um, if, the, if if our if our hearing of the term "Asian of Days" owes more to that than to actually being uh, conversant with with Daniel's vision and so on. Um, but for Daniel, of course, there's a reason for him referring to God this way. There's a reason why he doesn't just say, I saw, um, I saw God. He could have said that. I saw, I saw God. There's a reason he, he, he says the title of for God, which is, and it's a similar reason, I'm sure, to why God has so many titles. In the Bible, there are so many titles for, for God, right? There's many times when the same God is referred to you know, under different titles, hundreds that we could find in the scriptures. And I think in all, what they always do is they tell us something about the character of God. So, so these, they tell us about the character of God. And very often they take place, right, in, that, in encounters that God's people have with him. And, you know, they see God's intervention in their life in a unique way. They experience God in a certain way. And they realize this is, oh, this is, he's this God. Remember, I remember preach, we preached preached not too long ago from the passage where Hagar, um, God meets with Hagar in the desert. He says, you're the God who sees, right? And that's what she calls that, that place. And, uh, and so very often God's people meet with him and they, they realize this is what our God is like. And so they name him and all these names, these different names for God uh, become part of the worship of God's people because they, we, we soon understand that this is the God with whom we have to do. And this understanding of God's character that comes from understanding a name by which he has revealed himself becomes the bedrock for our faith, right? And so I'm saying when, when, when Daniel sees God as the Asian of days and this title is given to him, it, it's, it's because it's going to teach Daniel certain things about the character of God and then teach God's people who read Daniel's vision certain things about the character of God, and then become the bedrock for a type of faith, for a way to live in this world, to, to live as the person who believes in the Asian of days, or the person who believes in Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, or the person who believes in a God who is our rock, um, and so on and so forth. And it's not like the pagan gods, right? Not like the Egyptian, the, 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 pagan, the, the pagan gods that would have surrounded Israel in, in, in ancient times. I, you think of the Egyptians, for example. And the Egyptians had um, pantheons of gods, right? They had pantheons. They had thousands of 
of little gods and deities, and these gods would be representative of different things, right? So there's a god that was the god for fertility and, and, and fecundity, and there was, a, there was a god who was the god for, um, you know, agricultural uh, fertility, and then there's a god who was the god for medicine, and the god who was the god of the afterlife, and these, all these little gods, and they had the different personalities and the different approaches that you had to take if you wanted to get something from the god of medicine, that there was a way to approach them, there was a way they responded, and they were all these different gods, and they shared, they shared the throne together. That's not the same thing as happening when Israel is given, and when we give our gods all, these, all the names. First of all, we don't name these gods. We don't name God as much as he reveals his name to us. And secondly, God having all these names for us is our way of saying he's all-sufficient. Everything we have, we find in him. When I was, when I was, uh, when I was uh, like, uh, when I was uh, eight or nine years old, I think it was, I had to recite a poem in church once, and it was a... It was a it's a poem called, Who is This Jesus? And um, maybe you might think it's, and right now I think maybe it's a, bit, it's a bit cheesy, a bit corny, but the poem was basically along the lines of saying um, there would be a list, you'd list the number of professions, different occupations as it were, and you would, see, you would see how the names for Jesus Christ in the scriptures match that profession, and it was a way of saying, listen, you can find Christ in all of these things. So it would be like, it would start from, in the, in the ascending, is it descending order? Descending order, I think it is, of the, of, of the alphabet, so it'd be like, um, who is Jesus to the uh, astrologist? He's the bright and morning star. Who is Jesus to the architect? He's a chief cornerstone. Who is Jesus? Do one at home. I, I'm, I'm going to have to write this poem. I can't find it. I'm going to have to rewrite it. Calvin's going to do it one day. Now, the thing is, yeah, it might be a bit cheesy, but it was, it's making a point that, listen, we find Jesus in everything. He's sufficient for us in everything. He's all sufficient to us. There's, no, there's nothing a Christian is doing in his life. No way he finds himself where he's not entirely depending on, on Jesus. And you see, it may be that our inability to rejoice in the names of God it may be that the fact that we lack experiences where God's name, a, a title that God has revealed of himself, has been a bedrock for us, has been a foundation for us. It may be that it's a sign that we're not having close communion with the Lord, that we're not relying on the Lord as we should. If you've never been in a place and said, God is my refuge, to, to not have been in a place and said, God is my healer, I, I, I call him healer. Today, today I call him the Asian of days. Oh, I see now that he's, he's my shepherd and the overseer of my soul. You see, so even this naming of God wasn't lost in the New Testament saints either, right? So the New Testament has, has dozens of names for our Lord Jesus Christ, right? He's the amen, Paul says at one point, right? And as I just said, Peter says he's the overseer of our souls. And John can tell us he's the logos, or John can tell us uh, that he is our, he's, our, he's, our, he's our advocate with the Father. There are all these names. And if we, never, if, they, if, if we never have that experience where we look and we say, ah, he is this, this is who he is. I see today, I've learned in this period, I've learned in this month, I've learned in this year, that this is why they call him the mighty warrior all these wonderful names that God has is because we're not having wonderful experiences of the living God. Well, those people, the people of Israel, although they always said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. There's only one God, but he was all these things to us. And I think um, uh, we, we, can, we can do the same thing with this title, Asian of Days, and realize what it's saying to us about who God is for his people, especially I'm thinking then in a season like this, in a year like this, started again a bit unpredictable. You know, COVID's still with us. Um, pro- many of us probably experiencing the kind of acute, uh, acute discomfort and uh, upheaval and, uh, um, that we've, we've probably never experienced in our lives. And... Um, I'm saying, what is God to you in this season? What are you rejoicing so you can tell the nations? The other thing to say is that when, when, when these titles are very often found also in the Psalms because they, they, they were the subject of worship and praise. So very often, the names also, for example, with the patriarchs, you found that these names were given when the, when the, altar, the, place, the altar was being formed and the altar was a place where proclamation was being made and praise was being made. Um, and so they were, the, they were the source of praise this revelation of God would lead you to praise of him. And, I, and I'm saying, what are we 
what are we rejoicing? What are we holding on to? What is our confidence? What have we seen about our God that makes us sure that we stand firm even in a difficult year like this? Well, one thing may be that we say he's the Asian of days, right? And um, let's turn to the context in which that word is used um, so that we, we can get our meaning of Asian of days, not simply from that, the song by Ron Canoli, but from the Bible. And to be fair to Brother Ron in his song, he does a very good job. So after I preach the sermon and you understand it, feel free to play that one and let it help it to buttress your understanding. But um, we turn to Daniel, and Daniel is, uh, in this latter part of Daniel, anyhow, Daniel writes what we often refer to as apocalyptic um, literature. So that is, that is to say, the book of Daniel, initially, if you're familiar with Daniel, starts off simple historical narratives, just telling a story. The story about how Daniel and his, and his, um, his fellow Hebrew friends, Hebrew brothers, carried into exile by the Babylonians, stood steadfast. And even in the face of persecution, they, 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 they were not ashamed to confess the living God, and they were ready to live for God, even if it meant losing their lives. You know the story of the fiery furnace. You know the story of the lion's den. That those first six chapters pretty much are narrative, apart from, I think in chapter two it's narrative, but in chapter two you, you get a, a, a bit of what I've called apocalyptic literature. The rest of Daniel, picking up from chapter seven, then introduces heavily this form of literature. Now this is a genre that you find at different points in the Bible. There's bits in Isaiah, Ezekiel, and so on. But Daniel is one of the major um, Daniel and Revelation, of course, are two of the major witnesses, uh, major forms of this genre, genre that we find in our Bibles. Apocalyptic literature. Essentially, writings that are, they're usually visions or dreams and so on. Um, they're full of symbolism. So you, the approach to them is never to just carelessly read them literally, you know, because that can really take us down the wrong road. Think of how many Christians in the past year have been trying to see where 666 comes into all of this because they're reading revelations literally in a way they shouldn't be reading it. When a lot of what's happening there is symbolic, right? Um, Daniel is symbolic, usually has a, it has a future, a futuristic element to it. There's a prophetic element about it. It's telling you about, these are visions of, of God showing his people what is going to happen. There's a big mistake that sometimes Christians often make though is that they take books like Daniel books like Revelation and often suggest that all they do is talk about the future. That's very untrue. Very often, actually, although they have futuristic elements about them, they're written for the people, for a particular people, a particular congregation um, that the, the author has in mind. They're written to a people at present so that these words, so Revelation would have been a means of encouraging the Christians who read it then. And I think the big, the big issue is because we are very often... The, the symbolism is lost on us. We are unable to, to uh, analyze the verses closely enough and understand these verses closely enough so that they can actually have relevant application for how we live today. Not saying that there's not futuristic elements there, but, but they're actually there for God's people today, not just for you to prepare for, some end, for the end times. Uh, even though, as I, as I say, ap- apocalyptic literature does include a lot of futuristic element to it, does often talk about the end, what the end will look like, and does often talk about that in a cataclysmic way, it also is very often just referring to our, uh, how we live in our present world. It's meant to be a source of encouragement for how we live, how we're living today. And so that's, that's something to say about just the, the, the context of, of Daniel chapter seven. And so um, we, we come to this vision, this apocalyptic vision. When you read Daniel 7, if you heard me, if you were listening to me reading, you'd have caught the, 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 the weird images, the complex images that, what does this mean? You know, in this particular vision, and because we're not going to, we're not going to go per se into um, trying to explain what the, 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 the symbols mean, not, at least not extensively or detailed, I'll be rather brief on that because um, I couldn't do that any justice in this time. Um, but, but essentially, it's about Daniel has this vision that God gives to him of these four, of four beasts. The, 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 the images, images are meant to be, are intentionally, clearly meant to be grotesque. And um, they are they're ghastly beasts and they are devastating beasts, right? These different beasts 
Um, one is a lion that has wings of an eagle. Uh, one is a bear that has ribs in his mouth and so on. And it, 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 he's listing these beasts, beast one, beast two, beast three, and then there is climactic beast is beast four, which is even, who's even a worse beast than all these other beasts. And um, I mean, Daniel kind of says, listen, if you thought those first three beasts were bad, this beast is the worst of them all. It's more devastating than the rest. And um, it seems to, the beast, the beast in, these beasts seem to wield the sort of power that suggests that evil is going to win the day. And that God's people uh, are, are always going to uh, be, be suffering. And that God's people uh, will not have any salvation. These beasts appear to wield that sort of, 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 of display of power. And, and it's quite, what, what we do know is that those beasts for, the, for, for, for Daniel are representatives of the kingdom and the empires of the world. Daniel's writing, even though he has, um, in the Babylonian Empire, that Daniel, if you know the book of Daniel, Daniel, as a, who was taken captive into, into Babylon, has risen to very, very significant heights. He, 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 he done well for himself. And yet, Daniel was still always a poor Hebrew boy. He was he's still always a man who knew that his hope was in um, God restoring, God's promise of restoration. Daniel always still longed for seeing his people Israel one day being free from captivity. He longed for righteousness reigning in the earth. Remember that Daniel was a man who lived righteously in an ungodly world. He lived righteously. He delighted in righteousness in a world where ungodliness was being praised, in a, God, in, a, in, a, in a world where unrighteousness was celebrated. He confessed the living God in a world where false gods were celebrated and the living God was blasphemed. And so for Daniel, it's a picture of him saying, the, the picture is almost like, is God's, are God's promises true? Is it worth serving God? Is there really a God if these empires are reigning supreme, if, it's, if, if these empires have all the beauty and all the arts and all the culture and all the wealth, can we truly say God is sovereign? Can we truly say that it's God who's going to win the day? Can we truly say that life is about serving God? But in this vision, God shows Daniel that he must look beyond what his eyes see and he must look to God's heavenly throne. He must realize that empires will always be brought down. That's what Daniel sees, as because each beast gives way to another beast and gives way to another beast. He says, listen, there'll, there'll be all these rising and falling of nations, but in the end, Daniel, God is going to set up his throne. God is going to win the day. And that's what Daniel sees. Daniel has a vision of how God is always going to reign, how, how God truly reigns. And, and, and it becomes a reason for him not to give in to, to doubt. It becomes a reason not to give in to despair and discouragement. Because he has to say, Daniel, do you truly see what is happening? In all that's going on in the world, in the ups and downs that go on in the world, do you always see what is truly happening? That actually God is on the throne, he's sovereign, everything is working according to his plan, and in the end, those who choose righteousness are the ones who truly have victory, are the ones who truly have hope. So, in, it's in that context that Daniel has this vision of the Asian of, the day, of days. It's in the context of Daniel himself being keenly aware that it doesn't seem like the righteous are prospering, but he has a vision of the Asian of days. And let me, so, so let me draw your attention into three things that I think, um, in particular, Daniel sees when the Lord opens his eyes to, to look beyond the ongoings in the earth, to look beyond the, uh, the, the boasting of, the, of sinful man, and look beyond that and see that God is on the throne, and, and look by faith, not by sight. In particular, of course, in verses, uh, nine, verses 9 through to verse 14, we are centered, we, we see this vision of the Asian of days. Prior to that, um, Daniel has shown us, has listed the beasts the, that, that, that represent the falling empires of this world, that, re, that represent the fact 
that ungodliness is often reigning in this world. But then in those verses, there's this, the central vision, the central aspect of the vision, sorry, of, of Daniel's dream um, is the Asian of days, right? The, the, the central aspect of that dream. There's the central thing that Daniel sees in this dream is the Asian of days, the vision of the Asian of days. He sees the Asian of days. Let me draw your attention into three things and how I think then the Asian of days becomes a source of comfort for God's people. One is the character of the Asian of days, what, what Daniel tells us about the character. Two is what in this vision um, Daniel tells us is the center of, the, the, of, of his purpose, that is the center of the Asians of days purpose. Uh, the, 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 Daniel has his vision of the Asian of days, then he has his vision of the central purpose that this Asian of days has. And then lastly, the comfort uh, that Daniel has for the saints, that this vision has for the saints, this dream has for the saints. And then I want to make some, some, closing, um, some closing remarks. But firstly, what Daniel sees about the character of the Asian of days, the, the, the way all of this is juxtaposed is intentional. Initially, we read about these beasts. We see their empires. They're grotesque, as I said. They, they, they're not honorable images. They're images that... Um, should, 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 should uh, revolt us. They're, 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 they're images that we um, should be disgusted by. There's no beauty to them. All they do is cause havoc. Every other empire in the world. But then Daniel sees the heavenly throne of God. Where the ancient of days is. And, um, and I think from a lot of the things that are said in that, Daniel is telling us something about the character of God's reign and God's rule. Firstly, already, there is a contrasting there between the havoc, the, up, the, 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 the uh, uncertainty, the t- tumultuous nature of the earthly kingdom, the earthly empires, and the order, and the glory, and the beauty of where God reigns. So Daniel says, listen, in the midst of all that's happening, God is still reigning supreme. Have a vision, Daniel, of how God is Everything is in check for God. God is not, he's not uh, rushed off his feet. He's not caught by surprise. He's not anxious. He's just reigning supreme. And then there's a series of things. I'll just run through them that Daniel tells us so that we behold the glory of this God. Daniel calls him the ancient of days is the first thing, right? He says, he's the ancient of days. I beheld the ancient of days. And uh, why does Daniel choose this this, this terminology, this, this term. Well, it's referring to, I think quite, quite, quite clearly, it's referring to the eternality of God. I saw the one who is eternal, whose days have no beginning and have no end. And I contrasted him. I saw, oh yes, these empires, they might look like they're the end thing. They might look like they're reigning, but their days have an expiry date. But I saw the one who is eternal. No wonder he's not shaken and not moved. He's eternal. You know the best way to describe these guys and their hype? That's one way, it's a hype. But it's a fad. He's here today and gone tomorrow. That's why God is not moved. That's why God doesn't respond always instantly at the blasphemies because he's eternal. He's been there. He's done that. He's seen it. He's not moved. From everlasting to everlasting, Moses tells us, you are God. And as such, he's a refuge of his people. There is nothing about this that is new to God. So he remains unmoved, unshakable, unchangeable. This is a vision, my friends, for us to see, is it not, today? When it looks like things are moving at a pace unforeseen, things are moving at a pace never before seen, when it looks like our experience is so unique and there's something about our days that, we have, that no man has ever known, remember that God remains unmoved because he's the ancient of days. He's our refuge. We can trust in him because he's eternal. Nothing can change that. He calls him the ancient of days, the one whose days have no end. Like these empires, their days will have end. Will have end. But he's the Asian of days. Another thing he says, initially he says, when he saw the Asian of days, he saw him and there was thrones. 
There were thrones that were placed. It's the image of our God being a king. His sovereign hand. He's in control of everything. Thrones were placed. And God took a seat at his throne. The exfoliation of days. The one who truly is reigning. Friends, let's never forget that. Who's in control of everything? It's God. We must not treat life as though we are subject to some other power or some other authority. Like there's there's some other ultimate influence. It is God who is always in absolute, uncontested kingship and ruling. And he's on his throne. Daniel sees, I might be, I might appear inconsequential on this earth. I might be only small. I might be puny in the eyes of these empires. But my God who I'm hoping, he's a king. And he rules over everything. And unlike these beasts, unlike these empires that rule with viciousness, that rule bloodthirsty, that rule hateful, my God is king in righteousness and justice. Oh, I love his kingship. And Daniel stresses that because the next thing he tells us is, I beheld him, he was dressed in white garment, white clothing, white as snow. And, the, 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 and he, he speaks about hair like wool and the, these, these images. First of all, remember these are metaphors, okay? They're metaphors. They're not actually literally saying this is what God looks like. They're symbols that teach Daniel something about God. That's why Daniel keeps saying, I saw something that looked like. Because God chose to use his image to teach something. Because I've seen some people go from hair to black Jesus. I'll tell you, I've seen it. And I don't know, <laughs> and I don't know how they made the leap. But to avoid that kind of problematic leap, let's be clear. This is, these, are, these are metaphors. But here is a metaphor for purity. White. It's, it's, it's a, there's, a, there's a purity about him. He's holy. I beheld God who is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. I beheld God and in his domain there was no sin. Unlike the empires of this world who were corrupt, who lacked integrity, who were perverted, I beheld God's throne and I realized this is a holy God. And he's pure and he's righteous and he hates perversion. And in this particular image, this righteousness is his beauty. It's white, it's pure, it's enticing. The Bible speaks of the beauty of his holiness. It's his excellence that he is pure, that he is not stained by sin. It's his excellence that he loves justice and he loves righteousness. I saw it. Daniel said, I saw the vision of God. The kind of vision that moved Isaiah to say, woe, woe is me, I'm cursed. Because I've loved sin and I thought sin was beautiful. And I thought sin was enticing. And my heart has been drawn after perverted things. But this is beauty. This is beauty and beauty is a holy God. And if I love sin... If I, if, I, if I desire sin, if I think your laws are too harsh, too stringent, if I think that your laws don't give liberty, if I think that your laws are not beautiful, it's because I'm perverted. It's because I'm broken. Because I'm ugly. Because I'm fallen. It's because I'm, I'm the creature of dust. But you are excellent. And Daniel says, I saw in your excellence that you are holy and your holiness is your beauty. And I saw that. I saw it. He speaks about the fiery thrones and the wheels of fire in, in verse 9. His throne was fiery flames. I know very often in the Old Testament, fire is the picture of God's holiness and his judgment, but also his power. Right? Moses approaches a burning bush and He has to take off his shoes. This is the holy ground of God. And and, and fire is is powerful. And and it's it's awe-inspiring. And 
Very often, fire is also the very presence of God. Daniel said that this place is filled with God's presence because later on he says, a stream of fire, verse 10, issued and came out from before him. God's presence filled the place. And it was, it was awe. It was enough to deliver from the mundane. Right? To, to, to deliver from the mentality that says this life is just a pointless cycle because now I could see where true awe lies. That which is awesome. And then he speaks about thousands of thousands that worshipped him. In verse 10. I saw that there was thousands that served him. Then 10,000 times 10,000 that attended to him. And Daniel says, oh, I thought the nations of this world were winning. I thought their empires are so great because everyone is serving them. No one's running to, to restore us to Jerusalem. No one's re- running to rebuild the temple. Everyone's, everyone has to bow to Belshazzar. Everyone has to bow to Darius and Cyrus and to the Persian Empire. And to the, I don't see people rushing to bow to the king of kings, but then I saw his throne and I saw that he already had worshippers who incessantly, unfailingly are worshipping before him. He doesn't need their worship was the frightening thing that Daniel saw. God was not in need of the obeisance. He wasn't need. He wasn't in need of the submission of the nations. It didn't matter that they were blaspheming him. He doesn't need their worship. He's eternally worshipped in his heavenly throne. But not only that, there was thousands of thousands. That might also represent the fact that Daniel saw But there were those who God did seek out as worshippers. Let's be clear. The Bible says the Father seeks those. But not to say that he needs them, but he lovingly calls some to worship him. He delights in calling men to worship him. And Daniel saw that. Don't be fooled, Daniel, and think that the nations are winning the order of the day. Don't be fooled to think so. God is being worshipped. There's many coming to worship him. Daniel saw that. Daniel must have seen the one thing I need to do is join that heavenly throng and worship with him. I need to focus now on not being afraid of these empires, not wondering about my own importance and my own relevance. I just need to join in and fall in with those who worship, who lay prostrate before him. Another thing Daniel says about what he saw when he sees the Asian of Days is he saw that there was this judgment seat and he says the books were opened and in the Old Testament you know what the, the books often represent the, the, we, the, the Bible speaks about the Old Testament speaks about the book of life the book where God could keep the list of all those who belong to him and when the Israelites succumb to idol worship Moses once prays and says God please if you're not going to keep them then you block my name out of the book of life as though God the, 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 the view is that God has this record of every single life that ever entered into the world. I don't know if we, we need to worry about whether it's literal or not. The point is, there is not a soul that enters into the face of the earth that will not one day have to stand before God in judgment. How frightening. How awe-inspiring is that? The seat of the Asian of days, the throne of the Asian of days, the throne of the true God is also a throne where he takes account of all our actions. He doesn't sleep, he doesn't slumber, and he searches the heart. Every single action. The Bible says that everyone, Jesus Christ said, you, you give account for every idle word. We have to stand before God in judgment. We always live as those whose names are in his book. We always live as those who one day will be called up to stand. It's your turn. Whatever I gave you the the, the authority to call yourself, whatever I gave you the authority to name yourself, it's time for you to come and appear before the God of the souls of men and women and give account for your life. And we're all living as those who have to stand before him in judgment one day. That's all that really matters. You're so fixated on what people think about you. And I know it's hurtful for people to judge you wrongly, but I'm telling you 
The one thing that matters is one day God will judge me. What does God say about me now? That's why the glorious message of the gospel includes a testimony of justification that Jesus Christ makes us know right now that God loves me, that God approves of me. Not because of anything I've done, because he knows I'm a sinner, but he, he declares me righteous. How crucial, I need to know what my judgment is before God. I need to know that now. There's many other things I can wait to find out later. There's many other cases I make I can wait to find out later. There's many other submissions I make to the courts of this land and I can, I can wait to see if I'm good. But I need to know what God says about me now. And the gospel tells us that we can know that in Christ God declares those righteous. He's a judgment scene. This is a glorious scene that Daniel has. Daniel's vision of the ancient of days it just reminds him of the cosmic proportions of God's rule. And I think Daniel must come from there thinking, oh, 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 his, his majesty. You're the only one to be feared. I, I was so concerned about everything else. And now I realize you're the only one to be concerned with. The character of the Asian of days. The second thing, though, is the, the center of his purposes. Because God goes on in this vision, in this dream. Sorry, I'm using those things interchangeably, and that might be a fair way to use them. Um, God doesn't just show Daniel his character. He also tells Daniel, just look at what I'm doing. Don't be fooled, Daniel. I'm not just saying, oh, I'm a great king, and I'm standing in, the, in glory, and I'm content. But those guys run riot, and I can do nothing about it. No, the heavenly rule of God is also imposed and demonstrated here, even though you might not look like it for a season. I have purposes and I have plans that will change everything around, that will finally vindicate me, and actually everything is working according to my purposes. What I want to draw your attention to is that actually the Focus of God's plans, the center of his plans, shift from not merely the abstract overthrowing of the previous empire. So you know that before Abraham, before, sorry, Daniel sees the vision of the Asian of days, he talks about these beasts in verses one to eight. All these beasts, all these empires. Then he sees the vision of the Asian of days. Then in verse 11 to 12, he tells us about how the Asian of days actually overthrew these beasts and he, he destroys these beasts. And so basically, Daniel can come to the conclusion, oh, what I'm seeing is that the Asian of days is gonna pull these empires down, but it doesn't stop there. Actually, all of this is for a purpose because God wants to, because God has designed that he will strip these empires of all their kingdoms because there's one in whom He's going to place all his authority. There's one to whom, will be given, to whom will be given all dominion. Daniel says in verse 12, sorry, verse 13, that I saw one who looked like a son of man. He, saw, he looked like a human being. And I realized that this is the center of, this is, what, this is God's plan all along. God's plan all along is to place all his dominion, all dominion in this figure who looks like a human being, like a man. That's contrasting him with the empires before, right, that are beasts and grotesque. This one is like a man, more in accordance with God's design. There's a beauty to this one. This is the right, this is God's kingdom, right? Earlier in verse, um, in verse nine, Daniel tells us that there were thrones placed before the Asian of days. Now we see why there were thrones in the plural. Because one of those thrones also belonged to the Asian of days. Sorry, to the Son of Man. This figure that Daniel says looks like the Son of Man. So all along it's to him that we're heading to. This is why God has allowed empire upon empire to reign. Because all of God's, God is going to decide that all his authority and, and, and kingship be displayed in this son of man. He is going to be the king of kings. 
Unlike those beasts, he comes with unparalleled majesty. Daniel tells us in verse 13, he comes with the clouds of heaven. He comes to the presence of the ancient of days and the ancient of days chooses him. He is my chosen one. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall never pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. His kingdom will know no end. So Daniel sees in a vision something that we now, I'm sure, understand better than he does. That Daniel, God's plan is to strip all these empires of their their dominion and give it to this son of man. And so it's interesting, right, that in the New Testament, Jesus Christ is routinely called son of man. And very often when we read that, we, may, we just often think, oh, son of man, because he's a human, he's a human being as well as fully God. And we, 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 just, we, we fly from there to develop our, our, our theology of, of, of Christ's, uh, what is called the hypostatic union, the, the fullness of Christ being fully God and fully man. But actually, if we're conversant with our Old Testament, we realize our New Testament authors have a, they're not denying that, that that's probably part of it, but they have something different in mind. And what they have in mind is really, they're calling him the Messiah. It's a messianic title. It's not just a statement statement of of his being human. They're saying he's the son of man of whom Daniel spoke. He's the son of man that God is going to give all his, all dominion. In one sense, the, 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 the title son of man is a statement of Christ's deity and his godhood. And Jesus Christ himself quotes and applies Daniel chapter seven to himself. He often speaks in language that is reminiscent of Daniel chapter 7, Matthew 24, Matthew 26, and Matthew 28 at the Great Commission. We're often very focused on obeying the Great Commission, but don't forget what is at the heart of the Great Commission. What is the source of the strength and the power? What is the source of the success of the Great Commission? Is that Jesus Christ says, all authority is given to him in heaven and in earth. That's the Son of Man talking. And then, even more so, Revelation develop, develops this. And I'm going to read quickly from Revelation chapter 1, because Revelation also quotes Daniel chapter 7. But interestingly, in, the, in John's vision, the Son of Man and Asian, Asian of Days, the, the figure of the Son of Man and Asian of Days are merged. They're married. So verse 12 of chapter 1 he says, I, tur- I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstand, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. This is what's crucial. This is what I'm, I'm drawing your attention to. Daniel says, sorry, John says, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. You know what that image is referring to? It's referring back to how Daniel described the Asian of days. But John tells us now, describing the Son of Man, describing Jesus Christ, he describes it in language that is reminiscent of the Asian of days. That's not accidental. That's John telling us that this Jesus Christ is also the Asian of days. That's John telling us that Jesus Christ is one with the Father that the glory of the Father is also the glory of the Son, and that Jesus is the Asian of days. That's John telling us that Jesus Christ is the one who explains God's purposes for the world. He's the one. He is the one for whom, to whom eternity points. He is the meaning. He's the sense behind it. He is the one that gives meaning to life. Everything, everything is pointing towards him. Jesus Christ. How do you make sense of these days? You make sense by realizing that Jesus is the Asian of days. You make sense by realizing that Jesus is the son of man who has come into the presence of the Asian of days. You make sense of the world around you by realizing No matter what is going on in this falling empire we call the world, Jesus is reigning. Jesus is ruling. And you submit to his reign and you submit to his rule. 
The third point is the comfort for the saints. A number of times in the book of Daniel, we are told that actually the rule of the Asian of days and the way in which it comes to a head in the Son of Man is meant to be a source of comfort for the people, right? So verse 18, for example, says that the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever. Again, in verse 22, until the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Again, in verse 27, the kingdoms and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. The simple point I'm making there is that the rule of the Asian of days and the way in which it comes to a head in the Son of Man is going to be for the consolation of the saints. The faithful, heavenly, powerful, divine figure will bring those who are faithful hope. He will bring those who are faithful into the eternal possession, into the possession of an eternal kingdom. It it may explain why the one to whom God gives the authority, Daniel says he looks like a man. It's it's because he's one with us, he's just like us. It's a reminder that the the Christian's hope is not merely an abstract, airy-fairy hope. It's hope that men can delight in, human beings can delight in. Keep trusting Jesus. One day we're going to possess the world. I believe that. That means possessing life, eternal life. It means possessing beauty. One day, Christians will live in a world that knows nothing but beauty. It's all going to be beautiful. It means possessing the arts. It means possessing culture and law and creation, things, stuff. God has promised that to his people. That's why we cling to this kingdom as well, because we know that all the the delights that that people think they enjoy because they're outside of this kingdom, they're fleeting. The pleasures of sin are for a season, and they lead to eternal condemnation. The suffering of God's people are for a season, but they lead to eternal delight. So we choose the kingdom of Jesus Christ. What Daniel saw was that even in the midst of a broken world, even in the midst of falling empires, even in the midst of people who blasphemed God's people, even in a world where God's people had to suffer as well, those who called the name of God, still having to go through poverty, still having to go through pain and loss and death and sickness and fear and abuse. He could look and see that his God was on the throne and God had made promises that should comfort his people. Promises that mean they know that they have a sure end. Promises, you know, later on in Revelations 1, after uh, John sees the vision of Jesus Christ, this awe-inspiring vision, because Jesus is no less holy than the Asian of days. The Jesus Christ of Revelations 1 is no less holy, is no less a judge than the, than, than the Asian of days of Daniel chapter 7. And he sees him and he's, he's afraid. And Jesus Christ says, do not be afraid. And friends, I believe our Savior says that to us today. In all that we go through, he reigns over us, but he also reigns for us. Do not be afraid. Things might be out of control for us, but they are under control by him. Do not be afraid. Things might seem uncertain to us, but they are fixed in his mind. Do not be afraid. Look and see the heavenly promise, the heavenly hope. And this thing, this must be said. When Christ arrives on the scene in the New Testament, we learn that his kingdom is not simply a kingdom that we have to wait for in the future. It's a kingdom that has begun now. 
If you trust in Jesus Christ, does he not already reign in your heart in such a way that we hear the voices of the angels saying, peace on earth. If you believe in Jesus Christ, even now you're experiencing the benefits of a kingdom. Even in the midst of this tumultuous, uncertain, corruptible kingdom, you're experiencing the benefit of a kingdom that fills you with confidence and joy and safety and, 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 and hope. Because Jesus has given you his Holy Spirit. He rules and reigns in your hearts now. So believers get a comfort from tasting the kingdom now because of the presence of Christ by his spirit in us. But the Bible tells us the presence of Christ by his spirit in us is a promise that one day we will live in a kingdom where there will be no more tears. One day we will live in a kingdom where God will reverse The consequences, the results of death. We won't, we won't have to know death anymore. And we will go to glory and we will see those who, have, who we've lost in this world, those who have passed away. We'll see them, new bodies. We're going to see them one day. We're expecting to go and see them in Christ's eternal kingdom. And there will never be any more death and no more sin. No more attempts to usurp the authority of God. No more rebellion, no more abuse. No more curse. We're waiting, we're hoping for that kingdom. The verse, this chapter was meant to comfort the saints. Let me close by making these applications. I'm not going to tell you how many I have before you get exasperated. So um, I want to make some closing applications for you then from, that, that from, those, from this passage. And just the general context of Daniel's vision here in chapter 7. Firstly, we must seek to live then with this vision of a heavenly realm that controls what we see in the physical earthly realm. We must, we must seek to live with that vision. At all points, in particular, I think a book like Daniel chapter seven would have been, aiming, would have been aimed at Christians suffering persecution, believers suffering persecution because, or people suffering persecution because they trust in God, but they live in a world that hates the Lord. But also just for people who wonder What's happening with the promises of God? And we must strive to live with a vision of what's going on in glory. When we see things happening in the world around us, do we judge, as one hymn writer says, by feeble sense? Do we judge with our own carnal thoughts or do we judge with eyes of faith? Do we read the word of God? Are we able to see, oh, God is sovereign. God has a plan. Do we see that... uh, do we see that, that, that God is still on the throne? Do we see that it's all part of God's purposes? Do we see that actually we're heading towards the Son of Man who is the central purpose of God's plan? Do we see with heavenly vision? Friends, if we do, we will never again borrow, subscribe to the language of the worldling who is controlled by time and controlled by his feeble understanding of his days. Look at how so many of us have been describing and defining 2020, a a wasted year, a year to be chalked out, a year to be blotted out. There was all these jokes going around, right, about how people were not adding 2020 to the year. Uh, uh, You you stay there. Your life is adding 2020 to your year, whether you like it or not. But anyhow, there was all those jokes going around, and people were saying, and and I know a lot of it is is bants, understandable, but, but, but I hope we haven't actually fallen for that. A, a, a vision of the world that thinks our limited earthly experiences is all there is to what life really means. I hope you're seeing beyond, seeing glorious visions. If you, if you are, if you really are, with eyes directed by this, as I saw, fixing your eyes, you'll see nothing but glory. There's glorious things about 2020 because God is on the throne. And for you, 2020 will not just be defined by the things that happened, by, 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 by how media explains 2020 to us, but by your vision of God on the throne and all that means, what that means for you having to be a worshiper, what that means for you having to be a witness, what that, what that means for you having to enter into warfare. You'll see that 
Do you see that? So that 2020 was a glorious year. There was glory there. Because you are in the presence of the living God, or have you allowed this world to dictate how you judge things? Are we aware of the spiritual realm? We must strive for that, that our God is in heavenly control. What do we say to Christian believers, older believers? A Christian gets older in years and they lose, they lose the, 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 the ability of all their, all their physical abilities. They're not seeing as well. They're not hearing as well. Sometimes believers, Christian people, lose their minds. They're not, they're not able to think as straightly. They can't remember like they used to do. They, used to, they lose their memories. What do we say to them? Their life is purposeless? God forbid. Only if we're looking with limited eyes. Don't we look and say, but your king is on the throne. And there is things going on in the heavenly realm far beyond what your physical experience right now can explain. It's what we say. How are we judging this life? Do we have time to judge with just feeble sense? When we know that we're heading to the God who writes names in his book of judgment. Second thing is don't forget the kingdoms of this world will fade. So do not love the world or be surprised that it hates you. Friends, this world is passing away. That's how John says it in his first epistle. The world is passing away. Only those who do the will of God will abide forever. Don't be fooled. This world is passing away. Listen, I'm I'm for people chasing their dreams. I'm for people, you know, fulfilling their abilities and so on. But the world is passing away. Don't let anyone fool you that the only way to make meaning of life is by achieving some ambition or dream you have. Things don't always work out that way. God blesses people, but sometimes doors are shut. Sometimes you don't reach the heights you want to. But this world is passing away. Don't envy the rich and the wealthy. The world is passing away. Don't pour all your energy into chasing acclaim when this world is passing away. It's fading. It's a fading kingdom. Don't love the world. Don't love their value system. Don't wish you could be like them. Don't envy them. Don't subscribe to their thought patterns. Don't deny the truth of God's word because you really want to be accepted by them. It's a fading kingdom. I know it may have come to the point where they don't believe the Bible is true anymore and Christians are mocked. That's just the order of the day. Living in a Christian nation was always abnormal, right? It was always the anomaly. What's normal is for Christians to be persecuted and to suffer. Don't start to envy their kingdoms. They're only fading away. But only those who do the will of God will abide forever. Only those who know Jesus can say, abide with me, fast falls the eventide. But when the unbeliever comes to that same spot, who does he have to rely on? His money? or his clothing, or his followers, or, or his friends, no one can cross death with you. But we can say, in life, in death, oh God, abide with me. The kingdoms of this world will fade. And the third thing to say, though, is that although the Christian lives with this glorious hope, they're very often, very often we have to hold this hope in the midst of serious trials and suffering. Right? Yes, we have a glorious hope. Yes, we have the King of Kings as our King, present with us all the time. Yes, he promises us that one day we will live forever in his eternal throne. But in the meantime, that's why Christians refer to themselves as pilgrims. For a season, Moses' faith is the best way to explain this. Hebrews 11 says he chose to endure suffering with the people of God. He chose to suffer with the people of God rather to enjoy the, the, the pleasure of sin for a season. There's a time to suffer. And that very often is the case for Christians. We have a glorious hope, but very often the world might not like us. The world will reject us. The world will reject our views. We will be looked at as, as, as primitive. Our, thought, our opinions will be looked at as obsolete. 
will be looked at as bigoted. We won't be the famous ones. Very often, the Christian must learn to hold on to this hope even in the midst of suffering and serious trial. We must learn, we must learn what it is to do that, to be at peace because Christ is with us even though we're going through suffering. We must learn that. We must learn to be full of hope because we know where this will end. And to, we must have persevering power. When the Son of Man comes, will he still find faith? We must have prayerful, persevering power. So let me ask you, and this is the fourth thing, do you have comfort and consolation in the midst of all your trials? And, and maybe 2020 is a wonderful year for me to use as an example. I know what kind of year that was. Stop, start, plans dashed and sickness and trial and loss and some of you experiencing serious, severe lack and your, 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 your career had to take a, come to a halt or, or had to stutter because of the way the year went. And, and let me ask you, do you know what it is to have joy in the midst of all these trials? Do you, can you say with the Apostle Paul, I rejoice in the Lord always? Rejoice in the Lord. Have we known that true joy? Or have we been overcome by our anxieties? Have we been overcome by our feelings of, of, of loneliness and despair? Have we allowed that to overwhelm us? Have we learned what it's like to rejoice even in the midst of trial because we know our God is on the throne? That, means, that doesn't mean we don't lament. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying we don't weep and that things don't hurt us. But is there, is there, a, is there, a, is there a joy in the Lord that sees us right through? And just, just two more things. If we believe then that our God is the ancient of days, just like I think this passage is, inspired, was, is, is meant to inspire in those who, who, who read and believe it, we must respond by worship. And, and that, that's worship both in the sense that we often, very often think of it, worship in the sense of, 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 of laying prostrate before the Lord in ritual acts and just praising him and thanking him and, and, and praying to him and confessing him, those, those kind of ritual acts of worship, those, those things we must, we must take so seriously. If our, if our God is, in the, is the ancient of days, if our God is the ancient of days, the time when you're, 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 you're in a pandemic and you have to stay at home and there's a stay, stay at home mandate being passed on, it's not the time for you to, 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 to slow down in your devotions. It's not a time for you to be little in prayer and there's no time for you to, to, to worship. It's not a time for you to say, oh, I've really relapsed and I'm no longer, I no longer, I no longer want to, 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 just, to, to do spiritual things. I'm not trying to pray. I'm not singing much. I'm not, it's not a time for that. If your God is in the, is the ocean of days and you're looking beyond your circumstances to him to find solace and strength, then this is not the time for us to be falling flat on our faces in worship, on our knees in prayer, lifting up our eyes to heaven, raising up our hands in holy worship and prayers. It's not the time for that. It's the time for that. Don't let the devil lie to you. But also obedience. It's a time to be holy. Without, without, without fail, in the scriptures, when God's people are being encouraged in times of suffering, one of the things they're always also being told is live lives of holiness. The book of 1 Peter, where Peter's writing to suffering Christians, Peter says, be holy as your Lord is holy. I think partially because the, the, the New Testament writers know how tempting it is for us in the face of suffering to want to abandon our vows to holiness and our vows to righteousness. And I'm saying to you, no, friends, the way to, we respond to our knowledge of our God being the ocean of days is by a, a, a consecrated life. Obeying God, repenting of our sin, pursuing self-control that we might obey his law, living in righteousness, living in purity, holy as he is holy. And lastly, let me just say that as I said, the Jesus Christ of the New Testament is the same Jesus, the same Asian of days that is revealed in Daniel chapter seven. One thing that means is he still sits on his throne to judge. In, in fact, Jesus Christ says this a number of times in the New Testament. 
And the New Testament records this for us a number of times, that one of the things that Christ does is he judges sinners. So, will you not fear him? Don't worry. It doesn't matter what people think about you. It doesn't matter what pedestal people put you on. It doesn't matter what you achieve on, achieve in this life. It, it doesn't matter whatever reasons that, that, that pump you up so much that means you look down on other people and you think people are lesser than you and you're, you're feeling yourself. You will all, we will all have to stand before God in judgment. It doesn't matter that you think that someone else is worse than you. People have done far worse things than you. And that all your life you've known yourself to be someone who is generally just a good person. You want to help others. You want to be kind. But you're going to have to stand before God who searches the heart. And his throne is a holy throne. And, and I think one of the most frightening things is that the Bible indicates that it's Jesus that will do it. And I'll tell you why. Because Jesus is so compassionate. Because all we ever seen of Jesus Christ is that Jesus loves sinners and he touched sinners and he asked sinners to sit with him and he would plead with sinners. He'd do everything to try and convince sinners to turn away from their sin. I'll walk with you through that sin. I will explain to you why that sin is wrong. I won't leave you while you struggle with that sin, but come to me so that I can cleanse you of that sin. In fact, come to me after you've committed that sin so I can cleanse you of your sin. But please, please don't turn away from me because otherwise I have to judge you and condemn you and I didn't come to this world to condemn you. That's the heart of God for sinners. That's what God is like. God doesn't want us to die in our sin. Yes, his judgment throne is a heavenly throne. Yes, his heavenly throne is a judgment throne. But, but, but he's a God who looks at sinners and says, I, I don't want to have to destroy you. But come to me. Humble yourself. These, these acts of rebellion, they will lead you to a judgment that is irreversible. Come now, while today is still today that you might be saved. If we spurn the compassionate and oh God, friends, he's so compassionate. You've never had a friend. You've never had 10 friends. You will never have 100 friends who will be as patient, as gentle with you as God will be, who will forgive you over and over and over and over again so that one day you will say a thousand times I failed, but still your mercy is there for me. You'll never find a friend like that. And so for you to reject that is for you to show clearly that you deserve God's judgment. Brother, sister, friend, fear God today. He's a God who judges, but hear his voice of pleading and compassion. Turn to him and put your refuge in the ancient of days. Amen.